0: Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. The Federal Trade Commission's initiative to end non-compete clauses for employee contracts has potential to cause severe ramifications for healthcare. At the same time, the FTC continues to take a dim view of important hospital system integration. Both issues have powerful implications for the healthcare landscape. The latest controversial rule, which would ban employers from imposing non-compete clauses on their employees, would make it more difficult for healthcare systems to staff up while possibly increasing already high workforce costs, all potentially affecting access to patient care and available services. Today, we're going to explore the intended and possible unintended consequences of a non-compete ban and what effect it would have on American patient care. As well, we will look at the agency's work in the area of consolidation. Joining me is Dr. Subu Ramanan Rayanan. Subhu chairs Nira's Economic Consulting Healthcare Antitrust Practice and is a noted expert on antitrust issues. His work analyzing complex healthcare transactions makes him extremely qualified to walk us through the nuances of FTC's non-compete proposed rule, as well as FTC's latest thinking on the antitrust matter. Thanks for being with us today, Subu. Thank you,
1: Chip. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me on and for the kind introduction.
0: Great. So let's get started. From a high level and an economic standpoint, what is the purpose of non-compete agreements And what are the trade-offs they cause? What does the research indicate here? Let me start
1: by maybe setting the stage a little bit for exactly what we mean by a non-compete clause so that all the listeners are on the same page. So these non-compete clauses, these are found in the context of employment agreements, like you were saying, Chip. And these clauses restrict an employee from going to work or starting a business that competes with his or her employer. So it's often limited to a particular timeframe or a geographic area. So there are restrictions which are included within the clause. And these clauses are not new. They have been around for quite a while. Although, at least according to some observers, their usage seems to have grown more prevalent. And they've certainly come increasingly to the notice of antitrust enforcers like we are discussing today. So that's what we mean when we talk about these non-compete clauses. An interesting question that arises is, you know, what is the economic justification for having these clauses in the first place? Because if you, you know, just look at these clauses, it says, well, employees cannot go and work for another employer. Wouldn't that be limiting competition in some way? That's the first reaction it provokes in many people. But it's important to understand first, what is the justification for having such an agreement? So at a high level, what these clauses do, these non-compete clauses you know, when economists think about them, they can be thought of as a mechanism to solve a problem that often arises in economics. And this problem is what we call investment holdup. So let me give you an example of this. So, for example, you may have employers who are looking to make investments in employees. And by investments, we can think about, you know, on-the-job training, for example, providing on-the-job training for employees. And, one of these employers, when they're providing this training, making these investments, they want to make sure that they're able to get a fair return on the investments that they are making in these employees. And they may want to ensure that, you know, their investments in these employees, they're not lost to a competitor. So when you have situations like that, these non-compete clauses can encourage greater investment from employers than we would have otherwise if such agreements were not allowed. So, that's sort of the core idea behind why these non-compete clauses were formulated in the first place. Because investment that I was mentioning, you know, it can take on many forms. So it can be on the job training, like I was uh, talking about, where you know employees may want to ensure that they invest a lot in training their employees, and once they do so, you know, they want to ensure that the employee does not up and leave for a competitor or a future competitor. Because if they did have such concerns then they may not provide the optimal level of training. They may skimp on the level of training, or they may be reluctant to invest in the employee as much as they would uh, if they did not have such concerns. So a non-compete clause can help address this issue here. And it could lead to you know beneficial outcomes because having more training makes the employees more productive and so productivity goes up overall so that's one way in which these clauses can enhance productivity and make employees more efficient another example could have to do with you know having trade secrets protecting trade secrets so if a firm has some secret sauce or some proprietary know-how or assets then having these non-compete clauses can help the employers protect these trade secrets a final example would be customer relationships So for many businesses, their customer lists are among their most valuable assets. So, uh, you know, if you think about it in the context of healthcare, you know, patient lists, patient relationships can be very important for physicians. So a non-compete clause can help ensure that an employee does not walk away with your entire customer base and then start a competing business. So there are many, you know, different justifications as to why we have these non-compete clauses in the first place. And you can see, you know, there are... Ways in which these clauses can encourage greater investment, can lead to higher productivity, more innovation, and what have you. Of course, you know, there is a trade-off to consider here, like you were alluding to. And the flip side is, there may be some costs that these agreements may impose on workers. Now, what might these costs be? One, it could lead to reduced job mobility for workers, because you are restricting these workers from taking up a, a job at a competitor within a certain radius of where they were working or within a certain time frame. So it could impose restrictions on job mobility for employees. And as a result, it could also lead to lower wages for them. Because if, as an employee, I don't have the option of going to a competing firm uh, in the same region or within a certain time frame, then that might reduce my ability to command higher wages from my current employer. So. Those are some of the possible negative impacts that non-compete clauses may have. It could lead to lower levels of entrepreneurship as well if employees cannot leave and start their own business, again, within a certain timeframe. So overall, I think considering the impact of these clauses, one needs to balance these potential costs against what benefits might arise from having such clauses in place. So it's a very you know, fact-specific inquiry, as a lot of these things often are. So one really needs to understand both sides of the equation in thinking through what the impact of this might be.
0: Subhu, that's very helpful in terms of laying a base here. So now let's drill down on the FTC rule itself, the proposed rule, and I guess look at it from two aspects. One, I mean, what does it do to the process that you just described and second, what are the nuances uh, for an industry as complex as healthcare particularly? And would it potentially have, uh, from your view, uh, any effect on assuring access to cost-effective health patient care? Sure. So
1: let me start by talking about the rule first. So in January of this year, the FTC proposed a new rule that would categorized employers' use of non-compete clauses as an unfair method of competition. And the reason this is important is because under Section 5 of the FTC Act, the FTC has the authority to police unfair methods of competition. So what does this rule include? I think, like you were alluding to at the beginning of this conversation, this proposed rule would ban employers throughout the U.S., from entering into or attempting to enter into non-compete clauses with their workers. It would also prevent them from maintaining non-compete clauses with their workers. And in most circumstances, they would not, employers would not be able to represent to any workers that they are subject to a non-compete clause. So effectively, I mean, you can think about this as banning non-compete clauses entirely for the employers that this rule is, you know, applicable to. And I think that's an important nuance, which I'll get to. So the thing that's important to understand here is this rule makes these non-competed agreements what we call per se illegal. Right? I'm not a lawyer, but essentially what this means is, you know, the existence of the agreement alone would violate the law. So you would not need to, or, you know, one would not need to demonstrate that, you know, this rule, this non-compete uh, agreement has any sort of, you know, negative impact just having the agreement itself would violate the law. So that's how one would interpret this particular rule. So the nuances in this rule would pertain to what would be considered a non-compete clause. um, And of course, you know, who this rule would apply to. So on the first, you know, what would be considered a non-compete clause? The FTC's rule takes a fairly broad view. So basically they say it's not just about, you know, uh, clauses which would limit where you know employees can seek employment so prohibiting employment so it's not just that the rule also says there could be what they call de facto non-compete clauses so these could be you know even non-disclosure agreements if they are very broadly drafted the FTC says under the rule such non-disclosure provisions could also be treated as de facto non-compete clauses and they would be prohibited under this agreement. So they take a fairly broad view of what would be construed as a non-compete clause. And the second nuance in this particular rule is that it pertains to, you know, who this would apply to, right? And there are limitations on the FTC's jurisdiction in terms of who this would apply to. So, for example, in this case, uh, non-profit hospitals would not be affected. If you think about in the context of healthcare. You know, the FTC has the jurisdiction to review all hospital mergers, including, you know, uh, mergers entered into by for-profit or, or not-for-profit hospitals. But when thinking about enforcement of antitrust laws directed at anti-competitive practices by non-profit entities, the FTC does not have that jurisdiction. So in thinking about who this rule would apply to, um, it would not apply to you know, non-profit entities within healthcare.
0: So, as you just described, it could potentially create an unlevel playing field between nonprofit hospitals and taxpaying hospitals, which are subject to the rule. Uh, what are the implications of that?
1: Right. So, basically, because the rule uses Section Five as its legal and underpinning, you know, some employers like nonprofits would be exempt from this proposed rule. So, I mean, it raises some interesting questions, right? Uh, about how this impacts competition, given not-for-profit hospitals compete with for-profit hospitals for the same pool of patients, for, you know, the same set of insurers, for the same talent. So there is definitely a lot of competition between for-profits and not-for-profits, but it seems like, at least based on the current reading of the rule, it would only apply, or it would not apply, to not-for-profits within healthcare unless the nonprofit is organized by and operates for the benefit of for-profit members. So there are some situations where some entities may be subject to it. but again, based on the FTC's jurisdiction, for the most part, not-for-profit hospitals would not be subject to this. In thinking about this further, I mean, the FTC rule itself, you know would not apply to not-for-profits. Now the not-for-profits would still be subject to, for example, state regulations. There are some states that you know, prohibit the use of non-compete clauses and the not-for-profits would still be subject to those sorts of regulations. They could still be subject to actions by private plaintiffs. So there are still some, I guess, avenues by which not-for-profits could be subject to some sort of restrictions in their ability to impose these non-compete clauses. But the key difference there is when you look at the FTC rule, like I was saying before, it's a per se application of the rule. So meaning anybody that's in violation of the FTC rule, that action would be found to be per se legal. Whereas with all of these other, you know, state regulations or actions bought by private plaintiffs against nonprofits, the bar is higher in terms of what is needed in order to establish that this would be anti-competitive. So in that respect as well, even though they may be subject to no restrictions in their ability to impose non-compete clauses from other sources outside of the FTC rule, in all of those cases, the bar is higher in establishing that there has been some harm compared to what the for-profit entities would be subject to under the FTC rule. So I think we'll have to wait and see if the rule itself would survive in its final form or if there would be some way in which it may be modified to address this parity between for-profit and not-for-profit entities. I think that's something which we'll have to wait and see.
0: Clearly, though, if I sort of give you a uh, potential scenario, if you have a situation where, whether it's anesthesiologists or emergency room physicians, if there are a limited number of physicians in a particular market, then it, access could really become an issue here if there weren't these clauses. And wouldn't that mean that institutions would have to Pay them more in, in order to retain them, and that increases healthcare costs, right? Absolutely. I mean, we spoke earlier about you know the types of issues that non compete
1: clauses are meant to address, um, and we see lots of examples of such issues in healthcare. I mean, healthcare, you know, as the listeners of this podcast are well aware of, it's a complex setting, and a lot of the the issues related to investment holdup apply in healthcare. And for example. Let's think about recruitment, to go to your example. You know, if you're looking at, say, particularly in rural regions, so if you're looking at a rural hospital who's looking to hire, say, anesthesiologists or, you know, some sort of specialists, and they're looking to attract them to a specific region, then a non-compete clause may help ensure that, you know, once this hospital attracts a physician to a rural region, then they don't lose that physician to a competing provider in the same region. So in that way, you know, it helps ensure access to healthcare because, again, it makes it easier for the provider to attract such talent and retain such talent. And I think that's fairly critical in healthcare, particularly in rural areas where access issues are of particular concern. So, especially given the current scenario where we see, you know, a lot of rural hospitals shutting down because you know lack of demand or lack of talent and many hospitals and health systems are continuing to struggle to find staff, I think the imposition of this rule, and again, based on its current reading, it's going to apply to all workers, you know, whether it be a low-skilled worker, a high-skilled worker, whether it's a specialist, a primary care, all sorts of workers, uh, the imposition of this rule are going to have, my view is that it is going to have pretty significant impacts on
0: healthcare access. Thanks for elaborating on, the, on that issue. Uh, let's move on now and talk a bit about FTC and consolidation. What is your perspective on this issue of increasing healthcare system integration and how important it is to assure a well-functioning healthcare infrastructure and access to care? So we
1: have seen a fairly steady trend in consolidation over time in the last few years. And it's been interesting in the sense we do see continued examples of, you know, what we call horizontal consolidation, meaning two health systems combining with each other. But we're also seeing increasingly, you know, examples of, you know, vertical consolidation, meaning hospitals combining with physician groups or hospitals combining with insurers. So there are different flavors of health system integration that we are continuing to see. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what is driving all of this. So clearly, there is an ongoing trend of restructuring in healthcare. Now, what is this restructuring being driven by? It's driven by, you know, a few different factors. One is, you know, there are continuing changes in reimbursement, right? So there's continued changes in the way, you know, Medicare or you know, Medicaid in different states are thinking about reimbursing health systems. Whether, you know, a shift away from reimbursing based on volumes to towards, you know, value-based care. And that's coming not just from the government, but also increasingly from private payers. There's increasing focus on moving away from, you know, inpatient settings to outpatient settings and continued implications for what that means in terms of, you know, your ability to manage care for a population of patients. There are continued changes in the amount of investment you need in, you know, electronic medical records and the scale that you need to operate to be able to make those investments. And, you know, there's also a continued need for scale that we see that systems have pointed to in responding to, you know, shocks like the pandemic, for example. So there are a number of different drivers of this restructuring. And one of the responses we've seen from health systems has been this integration whether it's in the form of you know horizontal consolidation or some sort of vertical consolidation but the idea is that based on what we hear from you know many of our clients they are looking to come up with these structures that will better position them to respond to these changes in the external environment and ideally then you know position them put them in a better position to have you know increased care coordination provide better care for patients and you know improve the quality of care Now, of course, this is all to be thought about in the context of, well, are there any negative impacts of this consolidation that, you know, particularly the antitrust agencies may be concerned about? Often, the trade-offs that we see that the agencies are looking at is there may be all these benefits that may come through. Now, are there any impacts in terms of, you know, increases in patient costs um, that might occur because of this consolidation? So that's the trade-off that the agencies are looking to examine uh, and that a lot of the economics literature is examining as well. Um, of course, this is all, you know, each merger or each each one of these transactions is to be examined on a case-by-case basis to see how this, um, this trade-off, you know, falls out. But ultimately, there are many reasons uh, that we see that is driving this trend of healthcare consolidation all geared towards providing better patient care. I think the ultimate question is, what is the extent of benefit that we are able to see coming out of these different types of consolidation, and how might that compare against any possible increases in costs that may be imposed on patients?
0: Does the interest in healthcare that FTC has taken in all kinds of consolidation, I guess it has sort of two effects. One is the direct effect if they take a case, but how does it affect the thinking of those who are considering integrating institutions, particularly in areas like rural America, where there's such difficulty today dealing with all the complexity and cost of maintaining and running hospitals, uh, having sufficient workforce, meeting all regulatory compliance, hosting the electronic health record, all the difficulties of running a hospital today that have really, in a sense, I would argue, had such an effect on this trend towards hospitals consolidating?
1: Right. No, I mean, we've definitely seen, at least in the last you know few years, the changes in um, antitrust enforcement, the increased degree of antitrust enforcement, and frankly, the increased uncertainty associated with antitrust enforcement have a, a bit of a chilling effect on consolidation. So you know, health systems that we work with have expressed there's definitely a greater degree of hesitation and reluctance in thinking through the costs associated with just getting through the antitrust review process, and the increased uncertainty associated with getting through the antitrust review process. So, particularly for these smaller systems, for many of whom you know these transactions or these combinations might be fairly critical to ensuring that you know they have access to sufficient funds, sufficient investments sufficient talent, particularly for these smaller hospitals, there is, you know, it's a, it's a real consideration because antitrust enforcement is not just more vigorous, it has also become more expansive. So the scope of antitrust enforcement has increased. And what that means, of course, is that the costs of going through the process have gone up in some cases fairly dramatically. And there's also, to some extent, a greater degree of uncertainty because the scope of issues that the regulators are looking at that has you know increased as well so as you may be well aware of the regulators have expanded beyond you know what they've traditionally looked at in the context of these healthcare transactions to look at you know other areas like the impact on labor for example so all of this implies you know much more drawn out and i trust reviews, I know, it takes many months to go through it, sometimes years. And of course it takes, you know, a lot of effort on part of the healthcare systems to share data, to share information and to engage with the agencies. And of course all of this translates to a lot of costs on top of their you know managing their day to day business. So it's a real cost that's imposed on these systems. And what we've seen in our experience, in our recent experience is there's definitely a greater degree of hesitation, uh, reluctance uh, compared to what we had seen earlier. You know, thinking about, well, does this really make sense for us to go through this process and incur all these costs when the outcome of that review process is, you know, more uncertain than what it used to be before. So in that sense as well, in, some of, in many of these transactions, they are motivated by trying to figure out uh, a better way to compete and a better way to serve patients And, you know, to the extent those don't go through, I think patients may tend to lose uh, because they're not able to get the benefits from these combinations.
0: Do you have any experience either when they went through the process or through the gauntlet and didn't succeed, or alternatively, they did the cost-benefit analysis that you're sort of describing and frankly decided not to? Any experience of what then happens? Because usually a merger is not taking place because you've got two strong systems or hospitals. It's because you've got uh, one strong and, and a weaker one. I mean, what, what kind of response, behavioral response, do you see on the part of the care that's being provided in the hospitals that you know are getting to the sort of edge of the cliff here and not jumping off because of the ramifications of having to go through the FTC review?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I'll say this, Chip, I mean, in some cases, we've even seen the extremes. So like you're saying, a lot of these transactions we see are being motivated by, you know, a marginal competitor, you know, somebody who has been doing fine, you know, taking care of patients, but clearly they need, you know, say either additional investments or additional scale in order to continue competing and continue being a viable competitor. In some of these cases, we've seen them, you know, either really scale down their operations. I think we recently had an example of a hospital which had to at least shut down temporarily because, uh, you know, there were some uncertainties involved with, there were certain terms, you know, put forward by the regulators, which they couldn't reach agreement on. So, and this hospital is already struggling. um, And as a result of, you know, them not being able to reach an agreement and the transaction having to be abandoned, the hospital itself had to shut down, which of course you know um, has significant negative implications on you know access to care for patients. So I think this is a very real consideration for many healthcare systems, and particularly you know those in rural areas or smaller systems going through these considerations of you know what is this cost benefit analysis. Do I really have to go, you know, do, do I really go through this or not? And in some cases, even when they choose to go ahead, the terms that are imposed might just not be palatable or might just not be workable. And, you know, we have some extreme cases of, you know, hospitals shutting down as a result. So it's an unfortunate consequence. And clearly, at least in my experience dealing with the agencies, the agencies do their best to try to avoid these outcomes too. Because they don't want you know, hospitals shutting down on their watch because clearly that is not a good outcome for patients. But you know that is, you know, we have seen examples of that happen recently. So it's an unfortunate consequence of just going through this process.
0: subu thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today. Your observations both on the FTC proposed non-compete rule as well as consolidation are, are so important. What we're about is making sure there's access to patients' care and that people can get seamless service. And hopefully, FTC will recognize that as it considers policy into the future. For us, patient care is job one, and being available for patients is an imperative. So with that, thank you for the wonderful conversation and your insights.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Chip. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at ChipCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.